All right. Hey, really quick, just a, a three things that I want to highlight with you, uh, relatively rapid, and they'll connect here in a second. Uh, the, the the thing we're, we're really trying to do right now as a church is uh, focus a lot on just what it means to have good, solid understanding of the Bible, uh, to really know what God's Word says and how it impacts our lives in very special ways. And, and so three things that we're rolling out here in, in either the next couple of days or in the next month and a half are all things for you to grow and develop in those things, just giving you the opportunity. Now, the first thing that we're going to roll out this week is a pastor's, like, hey, here's a list of books to read kind of thing, right? So it's the pastor's book list, and and we're going to put that out this week on our website, on Facebook, that kind of thing. So if you're looking at this next year, you're looking at the holidays, and you say, hey, what would be some great stuff to read? Uh, we're just going to kind of put down put down some of the ideas that we have, some things that have really shaped us as far as our walk and journey with Jesus, understanding what we believe and why we believe it, that kind of thing. So that's one thing we're going to put out there for your use. The second thing, we, and we are encouraging everybody at Redemption Church to do that, do this particular next thing uh, this year, we're going to do something we're calling Text 2012. And what this is, is trying to get the entire church to read through their whole Bible in one year. All right? And so this would start on January 1st, and every day you would have a reading plan, and you would just follow that through. And the thing we're doing with this particular reading plan this year is we're going to read the Bible in chronological order. So in other words, instead of just reading it cover to cover like you have it in front of you, we're going to read it based on how it was written in order historically, right? So you'll get the timeline and you'll kind of understand, oh, that's how that fits with that. And it's a very cool way to read the Bible. And so we're going to challenge everybody to be a part of the 2012 text extravaganza, right? To read your Bible in a year. So that is the second thing we're rolling out. And then the third thing we're rolling out in about the middle of January is our Praxis program. And again, uh, we talked about this over the last couple of weeks. The Praxis is uniquely designed for those who may feel led to be an elder or led to be a deacon, but you can just take it to learn. And if you want to do that, you're going to learn about the doctrine of the church. You're going to learn about all other major doctrines in Christianity. You're going to learn about Old and New Testament survey. Lots of great stuff comes out of Praxis. And so you may say, hey, I just want to take it to take it. We would love you to do that, right? So whatever you want, you want to read through books, you want to read through the Bible, you want to take Praxis, All of this points back to this one key thing that's important to us, and it is the topic of today, which is doctrine. Doctrine. Oh, look at that. Somebody got excited in the front row down here about doctrine. Yeah, you should. That's right. You should, like, Arsenio Hall is back. All right, so... um, Totally, man. I, I love doctrine. I do. I, I know some people go, ah, doctrine, that's the weighty stuff. No, I don't believe it is at all. I think it's the sustenance. I believe it's life. I believe it's fun. And I believe we should face it as being those things. And so, if you have your Bibles this morning, please open up to the book of Titus chapter 1. And here's the deal. We're really going to be looking at Titus. All right. So, I know you're like, I don't believe him. No, we will look at all three chapters of Titus this morning which is going to make it really, really cool. Uh, And uh, we're going to be looking uniquely at the topic of doctrine. Now, uh, doctrine is important. Here's why. It shapes everything. Like, I'll meet people and say, oh, man, I'm not into all that heavy doctrine stuff. I just want to worship God and enjoy His presence. I'm like, that's awesome, because you better know theology to do that. Right? I mean, it's like, you better know who you're worshiping, how he wants to be worshipped, why he wants to be worshipped, or I don't know what you're worshipping, right? So, theology matters for worship. Theology matters for our own self-understanding and awareness. When we understand theology and doctrine, we realize we are messed up and we need a Savior. And so doctrine says you're messed up, but good news, I came into the world to redeem and save and bring lost people to life, right? So that's what doctrine teaches us. Doctrine teaches us about relationship, relationship to God, relationship with each other. It tells us how we should respond to certain things in life, right? Doctrine does all of that. Doctrine teaches about mission. Doctrine teaches about everything. And so when we talk about this, we want to make sure that we're going, yes, Jesus, I want to know what it is you say, So I know how to believe and how to live and how to think and how to do 
all again for worship. Because that's where it really all comes back. Everything is connected to worship. That's why doctrine exists. Now, underneath this idea of doctrine, we might throw the plural on it. There are doctrines, right? So you're going to have under the big marquee of doctrine, you're going to have God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, salvation, church, whatever else. These are doctrines. And, And here's what I want you to understand about doctrines this morning. Not all doctrines are created equal. Right? What I mean by that is that there are different doctrines with different orders of importance and in some ways severity if we get those doctrines wrong. So in my little list of things, I see it a little bit as DEFCON. We're going to call it DEFCON, right? But it's like the DEFCON scale, right? One to five. One being we're pushing the button and we're having a fireworks show. Five. Eh, whatever, right? The same is true in doctrine. So, for example, if we kind of go to DocCon 1, this is the stuff we die for. We die for. So, a doctrine that says Christ alone, we die for that. A doctrine that says the gospel, we die for that. And historically, Christians have died for these ideas. Those are die-for doctrines. No questions, no ifs, ands, buts, or whats. We die for certain doctrines. And those are important. There's other doctrines maybe we don't die for, but we divide over. We divide over things like the Trinity. Or we divide over things like hell. We even divide over things like sin and how sin is defined. We divide over how we see Jesus, if he's fully man and fully God, or some other cut-up matrix of that. And so there are things where we go, we divide over. That's why you all meet at that one, and you all meet at that one, and that's why your label's this, and your label's that, because we divide over those things. And some of those things are worth dividing over. I know that people go, man, is there, is, do we need to have division? Sure we do. Sure we do. Otherwise, like, six of us are going to have sister wives in this room, and that's not good. All right? So... I'm just saying, you know, it's like, that's worth dividing over. One chick, one dude, that's it, stop. you got to move to Utah for that action if you know, divide, you know, or northern Arizona. All right, so, um, I'm from northern Arizona, all right? And I only have one wife, all right, so I'm doing pretty good for a northern Arizona guy. All right, so, uh, divide. Some doctrines you divide over. Other doctrines, maybe you don't divide over, but you know what? You debate concerning You debate them, and they're worth debating, right? Uh, There may be things like uh, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether you have to speak in tongues to be saved or not to be saved. That's worth debating. It's important to debate that. It has implications, right? So maybe a topic like that. Maybe whether one can lose their salvation or can't lose their salvation. That's worth debating. That has some implications to it. Doesn't mean we're going to divide over it. Doesn't mean we're going to die for it. But, hey, we're going to debate that topic. Sovereignty and free will. We're going to debate that. That's that's okay. And it's okay in those debates to have a certain level of strength and tension there because uh, they're not just small things. But again, not as high as die for or divide for. We also have doctrines that we may simply discuss. Right? They're not, they shouldn't have heat. They shouldn't have friction. You should just be able to sit down and go like, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, doctrine like the end times really should be that. Some people don't make it that. They die for it. I get it, right? Um, Shouldn't die for it, shouldn't divide for it, shouldn't really even debate, just discuss. So nobody knows. Has it happened yet? No. So nobody knows, all right? Once it happens, then like the other groups will go like, oh, that was it, I didn't know, right? But until then, nobody knows, right? Right? And then everybody will realize that my position was the right one, so it'll be awesome. All right. Um, can't wait for that day, all right? It's going to be great. So, and then the last, you just dive out of. It's those doctrines that... Nobody cares at all. It's not even worth the energy. It's not worth the oxygen in the room. Did Adam have a belly button? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Right? Nobody cares. Little theologians sitting around, but you know, nobody cares. All right. So, doctrines have orders of importance, right? Orders of severity. And if we mess up the die for, we're messed up. If we mess up some of the divide over, it has some important consequence. And then on down the list. 
And if I look at the topic this morning and the doctrine that we're chiefly looking at, this is like a level one, level two kind of thing. It may not, it may not go fully into level one, but it's not the bottom end of level two. It is right up there in that nest egg of importance. And it is the doctrine of the grace of God. The doctrine of the grace of God, the doctrine of grace, is of paramount importance. It is huge, more than sometimes we realize. I mean, it is that thing that if you lose it, if you miss it, if you twist it, you're going to mess up everything. You're going to mess up a view of Christ, a view of the gospel, a view of the mission of God. It's all going to get lost if you lose sight of biblical grace. It is the cheese to our macaroni. That's what I'm saying. All right? It is. It's just that thing that we need to make sure we, we fight to understand and fight to embrace because it sets the stage for our Christian faith. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, that's the, the real radical thing. Uh, Christianity is uniquely defined by, by grace. I mean, you look at all the religions of the world, and the religions of the world say, here's how you get to God, gods, goddesses, fill in the blank, whatever it is. You either do it by way of being a really good person, and you earn, and you work, and you achieve, and if you need to, you strap a bomb on, you do whatever you need to do to get there. Or you put off everything in life, you become this person that doesn't have any material goods, and you just reach enlightenment this full knowledge of the universe flowing into your mind, right? So, that. But, but, but both are the same thing. Here's what you do. Here's what you accomplish. Here's what you achieve. Here's what you master. Here's what you work at. And then eventually, you'll have whatever it is. Nirvana, God, heaven, utopia. But Christianity says, no, 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 no. This is where we're different. It's not enlightenment. It's not works. It's something done for you something done on your behalf that you don't do of grace. That, that's, a, that's a big shift from everybody else. And that's why I say grace is that top tier. It is a huge, huge deal. In fact, I would go so far as to see, say that if you want to see Jesus correctly, you need to see grace correctly. If you want to see Jesus correctly, you must see grace correctly. Uh, because if you don't, it's going to twist a vision of Jesus. In fact, I was thinking about it this week. There's different visions of Jesus. There's the grace of the Costco sampler Jesus. Right? And, and I think we know this one. I mean, this is what we love about Costco. You go, you get this little dollop of something, a little meatball of something. I don't even know what the meat is. You know, but it's got a little toothpick in it. It's this little jello pack. Whatever it is, and you try it, it tastes so good, and it's so delightful, and it's so fun. But you know what? It's not really filling. It's not designed to give you nourishment. It's just this nice little taste of something. And some people, that's how they see Jesus and His grace. They go, oh man, we love Jesus. We love His grace, because then He's in my life like He's just this little sampler. And I get this little taste of Jesus that makes me feel good. And I say I'm a Christian and I'm going through the motions of just kind of saying I'm a Christian. I don't take it that seriously. But again, Jesus is here for me to sample. He's my snack. right? And, and that's one version. And so that's going to shape people's understanding of grace. They're going to say, hey man, because Jesus shows me grace, I'm good to go. I, I don't, there's nothing else. Nothing else. I'm just, I just do my thing and he shows me grace. And that is a vision, and that's a version. And I think we know people that maybe see things that way. There's also the grace of the Simon Cowell Jesus. Right? And this is like on the opposite end of the spectrum. So this isn't the, ah, Jesus doesn't care what I do because of grace. This is the other end where people are like, boy, I hope I'm impressing him. I'm hoping he's, he's actually liking what I'm doing instead of going, ah, no, sorry, you're not going to like Heavenwood. Sorry. You know, like, you're like, Heavenwood, I caught that. All right, so... Um, you know, where it's just like, nope, you stink, go away, go home, right? Maybe, maybe you're impressing me. Oh, but maybe, ah, 50-50, right? Some people see, like, well, I know Jesus is all of grace, but really, I, I, they feel, like, burdened by the fact that he may be judging them more severely than loving them, and they feel like he's just this cold, callous judge at times, but has grace somewhere. And so that's a version of Jesus that people have. A third, a third version of the grace of Jesus is the grace of the starter kit Jesus. 
right? And the grace of the starter kit, Jesus, is this this idea that like Jesus steps into your life, the etch-a-sketch of your person, and shakes it, makes it all a clean slate, and then hands it back to you and says, now from here on out, this is sort of your responsibility. Like, I made you clean, A plus, first day of school. Now you need to maintain that A plus. You need to maintain the clean. And, and so we feel like grace brings us in, but then grace sort of stops, and we need to start coupling something else to grace to, to move forward. And, and that's what some people hold to, and oddly enough, that's the situation in Crete. That's what Paul is contending for. That is what Titus is facing as Paul writes this letter. He says, listen, man, there's people in there that are trying to do that. They're trying to step in. And say, yep, Jesus got us in, that's great, but we need more to move forward. More than just grace. And so this is why Paul tells Titus to set up elders. And the way he rolls that out at the the end of verse 8, going into verse 9, he talks about that these elders are overseers. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The trustworthy word is the gospel. They must hold firm to that, that thing that's been passed down to them. He says these elders, they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. What is grace? He says they also need to be able to rebuke those who contradict grace. He says for those, there are many in fact, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, which who goes by that name? Um... Like, really, if I'm trying to come up with names, you know what I mean? It'd be like, this goes to the law party, you know, or the Old Testament party, but not the eh, circumcision party. Um, but, but they're of the circumcision party. And, and you have to understand what, what the idea here is, is that there are people, these aren't out, people outside of the church that don't like Jesus. What Paul is dealing with are people that say, we embrace Jesus. We believe he died on the cross. We believe he rose from the dead. And now that we're in Christ, we need the law to finish the job. We need the law to finish the work. That's why they're of the circumcision party. And they're coming in and they're telling Gentile Christians, no, 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 Jesus isn't enough. Jesus is good. Jesus is the start. Your edge sketch is clean, but you need to write on that now with some new stuff. So you need to follow this law and this law and this law, and this keeps you in good standing with, with God. This keeps you moving forward. And I think their intent is well-meaning and everything else, but it's, it's, it's pushing against an understanding of what grace does. It makes grace only useful in the beginning, and it misses the power and transformation of grace after the initial phase. No, no, you just you need to do this and do that. You need to work and everything else. That's the problem. In fact, I would say it's one of the most difficult sins to deal with. It is the sin of disgrace. It's the sin of disgrace where you go, grace kicks the ball. Grace starts it off. It's the opening pitch. But then after that, no, 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 there's this other stuff that you must do to accomplish, to achieve. You must take on law, you must measure up, you must have certain merits, whatever it is. And see, what's so tough about this sin is that it, 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 it plays out in morality and ethics and virtues like this, and so all the more, it's really tough to pin down. Like, we're used to sins that are, like, counter-moral. You know what I mean? Like, the this, this sin of lust or theft lying, right? Like, those are easy to identify sins. These sins that Paul's having to deal with are sins that look very moral, very clean, very virtuous in some ways. And so nobody calls them out as sin or as unsound doctrine. But Paul says it's unsound because it's not rooted in grace. You're not understanding grace. You're not focusing on the issues of what grace is all about. And so what happens is there's different variations of how law and grace operate. Some people see that it's law versus grace. Right? So it's like, oh, they're just they're just opposed. Right? And so even if you look at Islam versus Christianity, that's just a law grace model. But oddly enough, even in Islam, they say Jesus is Messiah, sent to the law, you know. The law. You know, well, we go, no, no grace. But see, sometimes we put these things in total competition. Other times people say, no, 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 it's law after grace. He saved me to do law. 
And so I'm clean, I get saved by my, or I'm, I'm cleansed by my saving. Now I am, my job is law. And, and that's how some people see it. But then you have law unto grace. Law unto grace. And that's really the right tool for the job. It's understanding that these things work in tandem. They work together, but they do different things. They're different tools. And so to really understand the doctrine of grace, you have to understand the right tool for the job. So here's the deal. When it comes to the law, the law is perfect. God wrote the law. God gave the law. God loves the law. The law is perfect. But it's God's perfect way of breaking us. The law is God's perfect way of breaking us. Now, part of this is hard because we have this street smart theology that, that sometimes works against us. We don't mean it to, to do this, but this is where we kind of miss our understanding of the law and what it does. So uh, I'll give an example or an illustration here. Uh, I, I hear this one relatively often. So I start over here, for example, and I say, if I'm going to get to God by my works and say the, 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 the God, we're going to make this really short, God is just the other side of the stage. And so we'll say, what it is is like, I need to get there, and I'm here, and so I take my best leap, and I jump, but I'm short. Right? I go, and that's pretty pathetic, I know. So, I take my best leap, and I'm like, but, but I tried, and I leapt this far. And so, that's about as far as law can get me, and works can get me, so praise God that Jesus does the distance. That's bad theology. That's bad theology because it assumes that at least whatever distance I can do, he's just making up the difference. I'm doing some law, and then what I can't do in the law, he finishes for me in his grace. The reality is, as soon as I jumped, it was a foul. My toe was on the line. Something happened. In other words, even my best effort in the law, my best jump to obey is riddled with selfishness and self-righteousness. But my best days outside of Christ are still filthy rags. And so to think that I'm making some level of jump and he feels in the difference is broken. I'm, I, I just, it's foul. Nothing counts. No good thing in me is going to close any gap between myself and God. Only Jesus can close the gap and he must close the full gap, which means law never is going to get me to God. Law is not a rope that dangles from heaven that I climb as far as I can and then Jesus pulls the rope the rest of the way. It's just not how it works. Because I'm not going to be able to do anything. That's not what the law does. The law breaks me. It breaks me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Right? Tool for the job, Right? He says, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Just, justified. It's a word we're going to see later. It's not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. In other words, what the law does is it stares me in the face. It says, dude, you're not cutting it. You're unholy. You're ungodly. You're not going to be able to do this. There's 613 commands. First, memorize them. And then do them. Here's the bad news. No more lobster. All right? No more ham at Christmas. All right? No more tattoos. I, I'm not allowed to shave the sides of my face. That's the part I shave. I let this grow. I'm not supposed to shave this. All right? That's total rebellion. I... Take off what I shouldn't take off and let grow what I shouldn't let grow. That's wrong. Breaking the law. The law says, Matt, you can never fulfill it. It's like having a parent with the highest standard possible. And they put the little chore chart on the refrigerator, but the refrigerator is a mile high. And they say, make sure this is done by the time mommy gets home. All right? You know, I can't even do that. Well, that's what the law is designed to do. In fact, Paul says it this way, and I love the way he puts this in Romans chapter 7. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is weird. He's saying literally that perfect good law of God at work in us 
bears sin. Instead of curbing sin, it coaxes sin. He goes on into verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He goes, by no means. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known about sin. For what I, have not, I would not have known that uh, the covening is wrong until I read in the law, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, Paul's like, I was just going through life. I was doing my thing. I would covet things. I didn't know coveting was wrong. And then I read the law. The law says, do not covet. And what was the first thing I wanted to do? I wanted to covet. Here's proof. You're walking down the sidewalk. You see a sign on a bench. It says, wet paint. Don't touch. First notion in your mind. I wonder if it's tacky, right? (laughs) Absolutely true. It's totally true, right? You go to the zoo. Don't feed the animals. Honey, you got any bread in your purse? I mean, it's what we do. It's totally what we do. Right? Take your kids to the Grand Canyon. Big sign. Do not throw rocks. There's little Jimmy. He's already got a stone. Right? He's going to go. He's going to throw. Why? Because it says, don't. Go ahead. You start telling your kids, you need to brush your teeth, do your homework, clean your room. How does that go? You want to get success? Tell them, don't brush your teeth, don't do your homework, don't clean your room. And they'll do all of that because they're rebelling against the law. Right? Human nature, when it sees the law, wants to rebel against the law. And that's Paul's point. He says, man, I didn't even know such a thing was sin. And then when I heard it was sin, oh, I wanted to do it. See, that's the role of the law. The law says you're sinful and it proves we're sinful. And then it overwhelms us by saying, you're this sinful and this sinful and this sinful. And you think you're pretty good. In fact, Luther called it the great divine Hercules that steps in and pounds out the sin of self-righteousness in us. Right? This is, no, 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 no. You've missed it, bro. You, 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 are, you are not what you think. You're not that good. I mean, that's what's great when people say, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm going to go to heaven. You know, I try to obey the commandments and, you know, follow the Bible. No, no, we don't. No, we don't. There's way too much Bible there to follow and succeed, which is the point. What the law does is it drops us to our knees in the mud, worn out, head aching, arms throbbing, heart wounded, panting for breath. And what we say on, on that breath that we're fighting for is, God, just show me grace. And he says, yes, that's where I want you. That's what the law does. It wasn't, I climbed and climbed and climbed, and then you finished the difference. He says, you realize the climbing was useless. It's not even the same game. I need you to be broken. I need you to see that you have an exclusive need for my mercy. You have an exclusive need to depend on me. You have an exclusive need to be honest with your state and let me do the work in you. That's what the law is designed to do. And if we don't understand law, then we can't understand grace because that's how they're coupled together. See, law doesn't save. Law never saves. People say that, well, if you did the whole law perfectly, you'd be saved. No, you wouldn't. I don't know why we say that. Paul's really clear about that. There's no righteousness contained in the law. Galatians 2, none. Law just says we're saved. But grace, grace is different. The perfect grace of God buys and builds. Ephesians chapter 1, we read this a couple of weeks ago. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Not through anything we do, his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ. Again, law condemns. Law shows the need for Jesus and His grace. He's the only way. He's the only thing. He's the only redemption. Nothing else. But like I said, we're drawn to disgrace. I mean, even in Christian circles, we do that. And, and what happens when, when, we, when we inadvertently fall victim to that is we replace grace with law, and it's like a butter knife screwdriver. And you know what I'm talking about when I say that. You just should not do that. But I, I bet you your husband has. You know? Like, oh, i got to take that wall plate off. Where's the butter knives? You know, I mean, just, it's not what it's for. Butter knife's good for butter, you know? Screwdriver's good for 
screwdriver. Law is good for what the law does. Grace is good for what grace does. If you try to invert them, exchange them, or replace them, you have a butter knife screwdriver. It's not the best tool for the job. It's not going to get it done well. And one that happens, again, in, 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 in circles, it's tough to see it. Because a lot of times this misfit thing sounds like doctrine, but it's not sound doctrine. It works and has works that look good, but they're not necessarily good works. People in those routines begin to try to justify themselves instead of realizing they're justified. Or they act sanctified and not realize that they're being sanctified. It's self-righteousness, not grace-righteousness. And so it creates this whole weird cycle of different responses and emotions. For some, they become burdened under the law. They just become burdened under it. And, and this, again, happens in churches, right? And this is what we don't want to have happen at Redemption Church, where people are, oh, now I'm just burdened. I feel like I'm never measuring up. I'm never living up to the standard of what Christ has for me. And you just have those people in the church that are always like, am I even really saved? I don't really know. And they're not the ones that are living stupid, by the way. They're the ones that are really trying, reading their Bibles, praying. It's just their conscience is constantly bombarded because they've been given this weird law over grace thing. And so we don't want it to where it's just like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened under law when I'm in Christ. You have others that are just bored though. They're bored because all it's been is law. Like, let me get this straight. Just more rules. Christianity is just a set of rules. Well, no, no, no. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. But then a lot of people feel like, but I spend more of my time feeling like it's a religion. And so I'm just bored. I don't sense the living God. I just sense another list of rules. And that's what happens when law overwhelms grace. Third option is we get bossy in the law. We start thinking our job is simply to preach law and teach law and remind law. I'll tell you where this happens more often than not in churches. It happens in our parenting. It does. I mean, I thought about it as a parent. I started reflecting on how I interact with my kids, and I thought, I wonder if, if I could get an honest, true evaluation of them, uh, if they would say, you know, Dad, you really overwhelmed us with the gospel versus you really overwhelmed us with law. Like, in a year, I wonder how many times I point my kids to the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel for all their daily affairs, and how many times they would point to, well, you quoted a law, you quoted a law, you quoted a law, you quoted a law. Now, again, I think there is a place, and we're going to see it, a place in the time for how that comes into play. But that, there, that thing is, is but, but am I making much of grace? Do, do I parent my kids from the root of grace? Do they know grace inside of them? Do they know that it's only by grace that they will be the kind of child and eventually adult that, that Christ wants of them? Otherwise, they'll just be a Pharisee or they'll just be some moral agent and that's it. And that will make them, honestly, and I don't mean this offensively, that'll make them no different than a Mormon. Make them no different than a very ethical atheist if it isn't driven by the gospel. If obedience doesn't flow from the gospel, it's just works. And that's nothing. And so I'm like, man, do, 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 they, do they see gospel and grace or do they just see boxy law? Or maybe for some people, when grace is dissed, they just become bitter at the law. And we've probably seen those people that just hate religion, hate church, hate Jesus, hate Christians. But they're just bitter. And they grew up in it. There's law, law, law. You're not doing the law. And, they, and, and, and in that sense, the, the message was right, but the means were twisted. The message says, uh, you should be battered down by your inability to do the law, but then they never heard the gospel that frees them. So they're just bitter because they never were given the solution, only the problem. Right? So, we have to real, realize that the law is a means to an end. It breaks us down to take us to Jesus, so that Jesus can lift us up. I think worse than all of these things, the burden, bored, bossy, or bitter aspects, to replace law and grace, it assaults the cross. It's, it, it, it totally assaults the work of Christ in what he did. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, 
That's what Paul is telling us in verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ, those of us who have believed, rather, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because works of the law no one will be justified under. Nobody's justified by the works of the law. Then he gets into verses 20 through 21, and he ends it out there, and he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Right? Hey, we can be righteous in the law. The law is good enough to get us there if we just find the rope. And that Jesus is crossed useless of no purpose. He says, no, there was great purpose. There was great need. We, we, we needed this, though, because, again, law isn't going to get us there. In fact, when I think about this, I, I want to pose a question. I pose two. First one, I'm going to have to explain. Um, but when we think about Christianity, we're called to bankruptcy. When you think about the gospel, we're called to total bankruptcy. And in bankruptcy, you have a chapter 7, you have a chapter 11. Right? And, and this is actually from a guy named Jerry Bridges. I thought it was genius, and I love it. And, and, and he makes this point. He says, you know what, chapter uh, 11 is you file it, and you say, I have no money. And then they step in, and they say, okay, well, we're going to let you still operate. You're going to have to pay this back. We're going to let you operate. We're going to let you do your thing. But there's a sense of you're kind of forgiven right now as you're paying it back. So, like, from here on forward, we're going to work with you, and we're going to kind of check on things and make sure it's going well, but you're not going to have any pressure from where you've gotten up to that point. That's kind of the idea behind it. Then you have chapter 7 that says, nope, you're just bankrupt. you got nothing. Everything's taken from you, and you're not paying anything back ever. Kind of the question for us then as Christians, as, as Bridges points it out, is he says, which type of bankruptcy are you living under? Are you living under the chapter 7 or chapter 11? Are you acting as though, yeah, I was forgiven at one point, but now I'm having to make sure I maintain something or earn something or work for something? Or are you just realizing you have nothing? And you're just bankrupt, bankrupt. And he forgave it all and isn't expecting a payback from you in any way for that. Right? Which are we should be chapter 7. We as followers of Jesus should be able to decide. I got, I got, I'm bankrupt. You, you, you did it all. You're doing it all. You will do it all. I'm bankrupt. But we live under this chapter 11 thing more often than we should or we would like. And maybe the way I would then kind of coax that out a little bit more is to ask the question, when does a person need Jesus more? Before or after salvation? When does a person need Jesus more? Before or after? See, Paul is looking at this idea of grace, and he sees that it's threatened, so he wants to highlight it. And he wants to make sure that we understand how grace works in the Christian life. And so, if you turn to chapter 3 of Titus, starting verse 3, we begin to see Paul uh, unfold these doctrines of grace. Right? All these little sub-ideas that point to what grace is all about. And the place he starts with the fact that, that humanity is sinful from root to fruit. Right, From the very core of our person, our nature is sinful and it plays out in sinful action. We are not declared sinners by way of our sins. We are declared sinners because we're sinful and from that we sin. Right, It's just the nature from day one broken. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we sin. And you know that. You know just your inclinations. You think about it. You can see the residue. Even if a, as a Christian, you can see the residue of that old nature before Christ when something happens and that first emotional response comes out. I mean, if somebody cuts you off or somebody says something mean about you or you hear some gossip about you, usually, in most cases, your first inclination isn't to go, bless you and keep you. That's not your thing, right? It's just not. One of those fingers, not two, right? Um, it's just, they, they, you know, we have our thing. That's, that's that thing in us, that, that first trigger is to defend, to get mad, to get angry, to get even. What That's our first thing, right? So we know our nature's that way, and that's where he starts. Humanity is sinful from root to fruit. Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Amen. All right, like, that's a mean list. 
but that was us. This is the pre-Jesus. Our problem is that we are sinful from root to fruit. But then in the context of that, God moves in grace. When we were fighting, hated, hating, envy, wanting the American dream for us and not others or whatever our thing was, it was in that the grace moves. Verse 4, but... I love it when you see a but in the New Testament. One T, by the way. I love that. I love that because it says, but something is different. So we were this but. This is when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Dot, dot, dot. But I love this because that idea of appeared, it's where we get the word epiphany. And that's the idea of like a superhero flying in. So here we are, we're broken. We're like Gotham City just on acid and doing stupid things. And then suddenly, bam, the superhero comes in Jesus. And it appears in grace, in mercy, in loving kindness. When we're broken and wrong and doing foolish things. He appears. Grace moves. From there, we see that God in His grace takes and gives. Verse 5, it says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Right? Swoops in. He rescues. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not even the, hey, I saw how far you climbed the rope. I thought I'd pull it up. I saw how far you jumped. I thought I'd fill in the gap. Nope. He didn't see anything particularly unique in us in that sense. There wasn't righteousness in us in that sense. He just simply said, according to his own mercy. I love that. Luther calls it the great exchange where he takes all of our sin and puts it on himself. And he takes the punishment for that. And then in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. Right? He does the work. He takes our sin and gives in grace. So he moves. He takes and then Paul says he also awakens in grace. He did this by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. And I love that regeneration, that nature is regenerated. Our heart, soul, and mind is renewed in grace. So far, it isn't like, hey, man, did you know you're renewing your mind like on your own? It's not happening. Did you know that you, you've rejuvenated yourself? It's not happening. He does all this work. Paul goes on to say he keeps us in grace. So, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love that. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. You enter eternal glory here, it says, by grace. So if you look at that whole thing, you're saved by grace, you're kept by grace, you're brought into eternal glory by grace. Uh, how much do you need Jesus more before you're saved or after? Yes. The answer is just yes. It's just yes, it's always yes. But then what's great about this is that it's not just an issue of position, it's a position that plays into a practice by grace. In fact, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that God grows us in this same grace. Grace isn't just a thing that says, up your pardon. No, it empowers. Verse 80 says, this thing is trustworthy. Everything he's just said, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But he doesn't say right off the bat, hey, go do works good works. He says, listen, here's the bottom line. Good works are rooted and knowing that it is God's grace from beginning to end that's at work in you. Only when you know it's God's grace at work in you are you going to have good works. Otherwise, it's just works that are good according to people but not for God. There's a difference. And so jump really quick. We're going to wrap up here. Jump into Titus chapter 2. Because it's in Titus 2 that he talks about the power of grace. I have to see if I can do this in three minutes. All right. So, the power of grace. First, grace justifies. Verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Again, superhero. Dun, 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 epiphany. Right? It's appeared. He's the hero. And he brings salvation for all people. That's the grace that justifies. God says you are just because of my son, because of what he did, not because of what you've done. 
Grace justifies. That's the power of grace. And then, grace sanctifies. He says, this same grace that has appeared to bring salvation, verse 12, is training us. What's training us? Grace. Christ. The gospel is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I love this. The grace of God teaches us to go Nancy Reagan and just say no. That's awesome. And the grace of God gives us the power to live yes. To say no and to live yes. How do we do that? Grace. As soon as it's, oh, I'm just going to be self-determined and I'm, then it, no, we're, we're, it, it, it's grace. It's getting in touch with, with grace. He goes on to say that grace glorifies. This is going on, this renouncing and taking up while we're waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And I love this because again, verse 11, it appeared one day, it will appear again. It's like grace is at your back and grace is right before you all the time. It's pushing you and pulling you. You are in the stream of grace to obey, to say no, to say yes, to do what Jesus wants you to do. And why is this happening ultimately? Because grace inspires. Verse 14, it says, who gave himself to redeem us every lawless thing and deed and to purify for himself a people who, is, who are his own possession and who are zealous for good works. See, this is the difference right here. I mean, this is the, the make and break for me. Uh, what God didn't want to do is to say, I want to save you so you do good things and you're bummed about it. He didn't say, I want to save you by my grace so you are burdened under the oppression of obedience to the gospel. Look what he says, zealous for good works. See, when we get in touch with grace alive, grace active, grace powerful, when we realize the magnitude of the cross and the great exchange, he took all of my junk and gave me all of his righteousness so I can be zealous for good works. Man, that should shape why I do good things in good ways. It's not for me, it's for him. It's gratitude, it's delight, it's Thank you. Trust me, if somebody jumped in front of you and saved you from a bus and they took the hit, but they lived, you'd be grateful for the rest of your life. And that's what Jesus did for us. And so he's not saying, hey, man, be indentured to me out of some level of just ridiculous duty. He says, no, I've saved you by grace so you would delight. So that you would obey with zeal to do good works. Not just sense of the sense of oh I, I have to because you know I'm a Christian and that's what Christians do and kind of a drag. Bueller. I mean you know this is one of my favorite verses of all time because it reminds me of what the real target is. It isn't just to obey; it's to be zealous for good works. First John chapter five verse three. Uh, this is the love of God that we obey His commands and His commands are not burdensome. I would say apart from grace, they're tremendously burdensome and they bring us into the dirt. But under grace, in grace, through grace, by grace, for grace, all for His glory, boy, that, that brings zeal. And I find in my own life there are times where I do not want to zealously obey and then the problem there is I'm not living in grace. I'm either living in my works or I'm living in my sin and want to get reconnected to grace. And I think the way we stay most connected to grace is that we're staying connected to Christ, who is the fuel of grace. We're getting alone with Christ. We're reading of Christ. We're praying to Christ. We're fasting regarding Christ. Our focus is Christ. Not just rules and laws and creed and orthodoxy and system. Christ. When that's there, that's the sweet spot. And there is a zeal for your life. And so grace isn't tolerance. Grace is inspiration. Grace isn't just get out of jail free. Grace is get out of jail free. And now here, here's an education. Here's a place to live. Here's things to do because I've empowered you to do that. That's what we understand about grace. And so from that, Paul says, proclaim grace. Verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He says, Grace, preach it, rebuke those who are against it, rebuke those who water it down, rebuke those who refuse it. 
let them see the beauty of grace. So I guess in some strange way we would have to say this morning that the bad news is is that we are far worse off than we probably thought walking in. Right? But the good news is that by grace we are far more alive than we can imagine. By grace we are far more empowered than we may dare to. By grace we have more opportunity to not just please God, but to please God with a zealous passion He's God because of what He's done for us. Why you go ahead and bow your heads right now? As you do so, there may be some in this room, I don't know, um, that, you know, you're checking out Jesus, checking out what He's all about. And, and this is a message for you today where, again, you may be here in part because you go, I've made some mistakes, there's been some decisions, they haven't been good, I know that God wouldn't be pleased. It's good that you see that because that's exactly, those things are just, drive us to the need for God and the need for grace, the need for the gospel. And the gospel is a very simple idea that says, you know what? Jesus came into this world. He lived perfect. He died sacrificially. He took our sins fully. He paid them completely. And he rose from the dead to prove that he's God and took that stuff on our behalf. And if you say, I am a, I'm a person who has sinned against you, God, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy, but I need you, have grace and mercy on me. Forgive me of my sins. He forgives you. He accepts you. He takes you. He cleans you completely in His grace and gives you the grace to live. If you want to make that your prayer and your way, you can do that right where you're at. We're not asking you to raise a hand or anything else, but we would love to know if you prayed that prayer and say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for running after me as I ran away from you. You make that your prayer, your words, He hears you. Save you. Love to know if that was your prayer today. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your grace. Thank you as a church that we hold your grace in the highest esteem. Because we hold your gospel in the highest esteem. This is your day, and we love you.